Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Broken promises break relationships. I was reminded of that in a very personal way last week, Sunday. I drove home after church. I parked my car. I walk inside, and my son, who's two-year-old, is in the middle of a terrible twos temper tantrum. It's nap time, or so I thought. I picked him up, and I hug him. I, I hold him close, and I ask him why he's sad. I find out the real reason he's crying. My heart drops into my stomach as his eyes, which are right pointed at mine, fill with tears. He says, Daddy. He says, Daddy, chicory ice cream. Translation, Daddy, you promised last night at Chick-fil-A that I could have some of your ice cream. And he's right. I broke a promise. I said that when he was done with his chicken nuggets, he could have some of my ice cream, but I forgot. He went on to go play in the play place, and as I watched him go down the side again and again, my appetite and my love for ice cream got the better of me. I finished the cone, and we forgot that we said we'd share this ice cream until the next day, Sunday, when Chick-fil-A is closed. You try explaining that to a two-year-old. Broken promises can break relationships. And that's what God's people were saying to themselves 700 years before the very first Christmas. You see, God made a promise. God made a promise to God's people and specifically to King David, that King David and all of King David's sons, David was the son of Jesse, and all the sons of Jesse, all the sons of David, they would reign on the throne in Jerusalem forever. This is what 2 Samuel chapter uh, 7 says as God speaks to David. He said, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And for 400 years, that happened. David and all of David's sons sat on the throne in Israel. Can you imagine ruling with a promise like that? That'd be like one family establishing the throne or the presidency in the United States. And they have it for up until this point and for another 150 years uninterrupted. And, and David did it. David ruled as a man after God's own heart. He ruled by submitting himself as the king to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But you see, the promise, in effect, it wasn't as good as it sounds. Because the farther that David's sons got from the family tree, from the base, from David, the farther they got from their Lord. The kings in Israel they worshipped other gods, or they worshipped no gods. And the problem with that is that in Israel, where the king led, the people went. And so many, many, many people in Israel turned their back on God. They abandoned their God. 
And they just went on like this. And spiritual apathy and spiritual bankruptcy set in in Israel. But God wasn't done with his people. He loved his people. So he sent them prophets. He sent them messengers just like Isaiah. And he sent them to him to remind them of the promise and to remind them of the punishment. The punishment that God said he would send if they didn't turn away from their idols and turn back to God. But no matter how many messengers he sent, no matter how many prophets came to him, what happened was, well, the kings in Israel, they only heard the promise. They only remembered the promise and they forgot about the punishment, what God said would happen if they didn't turn back to him. So God's patience ran out. Finally, God had enough and he said, okay, you sons of Jesse, I'm going to cut you off. Okay, you sons of David, I'm going to take an ax to your family tree and you will rule in Jerusalem no more. And God did it. He swung his ax. He did it by sending the nation of Babylon into Jerusalem to tear down the city, to tear down the temple, and to deport all of the people from Jerusalem into captivity. As for the kings, the thrones fell. The sons of David, the sons of Jesse, ruled no more in Jerusalem. God took an ax to the family tree of David and he cut it off. The only thing that remained was a dead stump. It's a sad story, isn't it? But you want to know the most tragic part of the story is that God's people, well, they stood there. They stood there in that promise because not all of them turned their backs on God. No, many of the kings did and many, many of the people did, but not everybody turned their back on their God. Many of them still stood there looking to him as their God. They still thought of themselves as God's people. They remembered the promise. And so they stood there with their eyes filling with tears, looking at their father in heaven, asking, your, your promise, you said that God, God, you would keep a king on the throne in Jerusalem forever. Did, did you forget about us? Did you forget about your promise? Broken promises break relationships. And, th and that's what God's people thought 700 years before Christ came. So God sent them a prophet. And that's where our lesson picks up for today. God sent them the prophet Isaiah to remind them of the promise. Because you see, God doesn't forget promises. God doesn't forget upon his promises and God keeps every single one of his promises. The promise I'm talking about is, is called the gospel. And the gospel promise, well, it's different than any other kind of promise, than any other thing in the world. And that's our big idea for today. The gospel, the gospel promise is different. It's different in that the world has never heard a whisper like it. It's different in that it's distinctive. It's different in that it's extraordinary. And what makes the gospel extraordinary is that, well, the gospel has the power to make everything different. Unlike any other kind of promise, the gospel can totally change, totally transform, and totally bring about something new in everything. And 700 years before Christ came, the prophet Isaiah talked about that. 
He talked about how the gospel, something different, makes everything different, and they do it in three ways. Through the incarnation, the substitution, and the restoration of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at those today. The incarnation, the substitution, and the restoration, all here in Isaiah's prophecy. Shall we get into it? Isaiah chapter 11 begins in this way, talking about the incarnation. The, the prophet Isaiah said this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This is the word of God. What he's saying is that from this shoot, this dead stump, Jesse's family line, the dynasty of David is a branch. A branch will grow, a branch, a living branch that bears fruit. Now let's make no mistake about who he's talking about with this branch. He's talking about him. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about the one on whom the spirit of the Lord will rest. And do you hear it? Listen, because in that promise, you hear echoes of the words that the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary at the incarnation of Jesus. This is Luke chapter 2. God's angel said this. He said, The Lord will give Jesus the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and ever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of the Most High God. Isaiah's prophecy is about the incarnation. That means God made flesh. Yes, he was of the house and line of David, most certainly. But nonetheless, he was from the Holy Spirit, born of the Holy Spirit. This is our first point that we're talking about today with the incarnation, that the king ruling on David's throne forever, he was different. He was different because he was God made man. And he makes everything different. God made man makes everything different. The message of the incarnation, the message of the gospel, is not something that God gave to you so you could be well informed. The incarnation is not just something that God told you about so that you could know a thing or two about Jesus. The gospel is not just so you have theological ammunition for your discussions with your friends. The message is the gospel that itself is different and it makes everything different. How many of you have ever read any of the works of Dorothy Sayers? Dorothy Sayers is a well-known author uh, who wrote a bunch of uh, books about spy work and mystery novels. She's also uh, one of the first women to ever graduate from, the, uh, from Oxford University. In the series of her books, her mystery novels, her spy books, there's one particular character that comes up again and again. His name's Lord Peter Whimsey. 
Lord Peter Whimsey is a highborn aristocratic spy uh, who's also a very eligible bachelor. But because of all of that, he also lives a very lonely life, a very isolated life. And this is a problem for Lord Peter Whimsey. And as you read the series of her works, well, after a while, what happens is Dorothy Sayers introduces a new character, Harriet Vane. And what happens is Harriet, who is also a lot like the author, a woman who's a writer, who's one of the first women, fictionally, to ever graduate from Oxford, marries Lord Peter Whimsey, and they fall in love and live happier, happily ever after. A lot of fans of Dorothy Sayers believe that what happened was Dorothy looked at this fictional world that she had created. She saw that her hero was alone and she fell in love. And so she wrote herself into the story to rescue him, to save him. It's pretty moving, isn't it? But it, it's nothing compared to the most moving, most amazing story ever. And that is the incarnation. That is the gospel. That is something completely different. No mind could ever conceive the conception of Jesus Christ. And yet that's the story that God wrote. He wrote a story in where he looked at his creation. He looked at you, the crown of his creation, and he saw the loneliness. He saw the brokenness because broken promises made to God ruin our relationship with him. Broken promises made to one another ruin our relationship with each other. And he saw us in our loneliness. He saw us in our sin. And he wrote himself into the story, the history of the world as the hero to save the ones he loved. That's the incarnation. And that's why the message of the gospel, which itself is different, makes everything different. This time of year is, is a busy time of year for many, many people. For a lot of people, there are plans and packages and there are parties and presents to wrap. That's for a lot of people. But did you know for very many people that this is one of the loneliest times of year? For a lot of people who are by themselves or who deal with um, mental health issues of depression or anxiety, well, they're only heightened this time of year because there are no handshakes, there are no hugs, and for them, there's no happiness. But Christmas in Fredericksburg, Christmas for you and for me, whether you're busy or unbusy, whether you're lonely or unlonely, is different. It's different because of the incarnation. It's different because Jesus Christ wrote himself into this story and now you will never be alone. That's why the message of the gospel makes a difference because it's the message of Jesus becoming Emmanuel, being God with us. It's the incarnation. It's the first way that the gospel makes things different. Here's the second. The second way the gospel, the good news about Jesus is different and makes things different because of the way that this king judges. Isaiah says this, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but the righteousness he will judge, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. This is the word of your God. When a judge 
judges and rules and makes decisions. They have to do so based on what they see and based on what they hear. If evidence is presented that demonstrates that someone did a crime, the judge must give a punishment to the criminal. If they hear testimony, if they hear witnesses explain that someone has done wrong, a judge needs to give punishment to the wrongdoer. You and I would never accept a judge. Our society, our, our government would never accept a judge who looked at evidence, who heard evidence like that, and simply goes, eh, they said they're sorry. They can just go. That's fine. We would never accept a judge like that. How much less would we accept a holy God, a holy and perfect God who judges the world for just letting people go because they feel bad, because they said sorry. Make no mistake about it. There is guilt on you. There's guilt on me. Far too often, we have, we have reigned in our life like the kings of Israel. We've turned our backs on God. We've taken for granted the grace and the love and the forgiveness that he's given us. And because of it, at the end of our lives, we deserve one thing, rejection and condemnation. And yet we're held up with the firstborn of all creation, were held up with Jesus Christ, who at the end of his life from beginning to end was holy and perfect and deserves only blessedness and only acceptance. And our judge judges. And he, yet he doesn't judge by what he sees. He doesn't judge by what he hears. But what we know when the time has fully come, God did this. He sent his son who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might have righteousness. He looked at the people who were unfaithful and he was faithful. He looked at the people who only deserved forsakenness and he gave righteousness. The judge judges differently and it all takes place in the greatest substitution that ever there was. Jesus for you, for me. Jesus for the world. This is the king ruling on David's throne forever. He judges differently because he makes the guilty innocent. It's different. The gospel is different because it's far different than what we expect. And it's far different than what we deserve. There is perhaps nothing more, more moving than when we see someone given grace, forgiveness, and love when they really deserve revenge and wrath. Charles Dickens, in his book, A Tale of Two Cities, tells the story of two men, Charles and Sidney, who fell in love with the same woman, Lucy. Lucy ends up marrying Charles, and then at the height of the French Revolution, Charles goes to prison. But what happens in that dark hour? Sidney doesn't take advantage of the situation, but instead he breaks into prison. He drugs Charles, has Charles dragged out of prison, and he substitutes himself for him. What happens is a young lady who is also on death row looks at Sidney, realizes the substitution that he just, just made, and reaches out and asks him to hold her hand, to hold her hand for just a little bit of strength. <laughs> Don't you see? As moving again as this is, this is what happens in the gospel. 
It's something different. It's a substitution that we don't understand. Righteousness for the unrighteousness. But God reaches out, he grabs you, and he gives you real strength. He gives you real freedom, and that changes everything. It makes everything different. It makes different the way you see this world. It makes different the way you see every single one of your relationships with someone else. It makes different the way you see God. It makes different the way you, you look at Christmas. It makes different the way you see yourself. And don't you see, the gospel is different. It makes everything different, and that includes you. <laughs> that includes you. One of the most profound ways that the gospel does that is through the restoration of Jesus Christ of all things, and that includes you. In Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 11, the prophet talks about the restoration that Jesus Christ is, and he does it in some pretty beautiful language, albeit different words. Take a look. This is Isaiah chapter 11. Let's begin reading at verse 6. He says, The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. This is the word of God. Normally, normally what takes place is that wolves kill sheep, leopards leap on goats to eat them, and lions go after young cows to eat them. But the gospel is different. When Jesus comes, when Emmanuel comes incarnate, everything is different. This is the last fill in the blank. The king ruling on David's throne forever, he leads different because he leads friends to become, excuse me, enemies to become friends. That's the picture that he shows us here of what Christ did. The Christ child who is okay to play by the snake's den. The Christ child who takes what were enemies and leads them to become friends. It, it's a picture of what Christ did. He restored all creation back to the holy, perfect order that Christ created it in. Let me say it much simpler than that. He makes everything right. He makes you right between God and him. You now have peace with God. You have peace of mind knowing that heaven, a peace of heaven, that is yours and mine. That's what Christ does in the re restoration of all things. He gives you that peace. The gospel is different. It makes everything different, including yourself. The picture that we have here of the Christ child playing by a lion's, excuse me, a snake's den, of him reaching down into the cobra's den, is a picture of Christ Jesus playing with a snake, doing what no one else could do, reaching down in the dark hole that he dug himself in, taking him out, throwing him down, and crushing his head. And now you have joy. Now you have hope. Now you have peace. You have peace that transcends all understanding because you are right with God. I hear those words a lot during this time of year. Maybe you do too. Joy, hope, 
piece. That's what Christmas time is, right? Maybe you see them on like Etsy crafted things or you see them on banners out in front of people's lawns, right? Joy, peace, hope. You want to know what I feel like doing when I see people using those words? Man, sometimes it can be Christians or non-Christians, people who believe in Jesus, people who believe in Santa. Everyone uses those words. You want to know what I feel like doing when I see people using those holiday descriptors haphazardly? I feel like grabbing them. I feel like grabbing them and saying to them, do you know what that means? Do you know what that word means? Do you understand what it means that you have hope? You have hope, and that's not just a holiday sentiment. That means that you have the surest assurance because Jesus came to you and was incarnate. You're going to be with him forever. Do you understand what that means when you say you have peace? You don't just have peace between you and your friends. You don't just have peace between nations. You have peace on earth, God and sinners reconciled. That's what you have here because of substitution that took place 2,000 years ago by Jesus. You have joy. You have joy in this world, a joy that comes not from inside of you and not a joy that I have sitting around my Christmas tree because it's sentimental and it feels good, but a joy that comes from outside of you and changes you. Do you understand that? A joy like that, a joy that makes everything different. I got to see a joy like that. That's one of the great things about being a father is that you get to decide when the time has fully come, when it's time for ice cream. So it was last Sunday after dinner, even though it was late and it was a little cold out, not really the time for ice cream, I went to the freezer and I scurved not one, not two, but three scoops of ice cream on a cone, bigger and better than anything they serve at Chick-fil-A. And I got to go over to my son and give it to him. I wish you could have seen the joy. <laughs> I wish you could have seen the joy on that young man's faith, face. <laughs> Broken promises break relationships, but kept promises, kept promises make relationships. They restore relationships. And that's what you have. That's what you have in the gift of the gospel. You have a promise that, yes, it is different. It is different than anything else. But my prayer for you this December is that you remember that promise. It makes all the difference. It makes a difference in your life now and forever. It's why Christmas in Fredericksburg, for you and me and all who believe, it's better. Amen. Amen.